0: you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to consider today verses 1 through 12 in our series, Hold Fast to the Faith, a message entitled, Walk Worthy of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the first 12 verses. At the end of the school year in 1997, Judith Tonsing wrote in one of her sixth grade students' report cards it's been great to have you in class keep up the good work and invite me to your harvard graduation 21 years later the student did just that kristen gilmer age 33 kept and treasured the note from her former sixth grade teacher saying that the powerful lessons that she had taught her encouraged her toward fulfilling her lifelong dream of becoming a doctor of public health. And she graduated in May of 2018, making sure that her teacher from so many years ago was there to celebrate the occasion with her. And she said, The teacher lit a fire in me, shaping a culture in which the students were motivated to achieve. In the church, our focus must be on shaping a culture of making disciples. We have to focus on uh, the idea that our purpose is to obey what Jesus has told us to do, to lead people to be his disciples so that they would be like him. He commanded us in the Great Commission to go and make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them. So my question for us as we think through this individually, what it means to walk worthy of God is are we as a church building a culture? And I hope the answer is yes. But even if it is yes, are we building a culture in which disciples are being made? And are we strengthening how we're building that culture? Are we asking ourselves the right questions about our focus, about the emphasis of our priorities, about the use of our resources? And are we making disciples as effectively as Jesus would want us to. And then, individually, are you, as a disciple of Jesus, growing in Him? Are you understanding what it means to be a Christian? A disciple is someone who, at a very basic level, adheres to the teachings of another. A disciple is a follower or a learner, someone who emulates the one whom they're following. A disciple of Jesus specifically is someone who learns from him and learns to live like him and learns to conform and to shape their lives so that they would be like Jesus. So I would say in a summary of what a disciple is, a disciple is a worshiper, a disciple is a servant, and a disciple is a witness of Jesus. Let me say that again. A disciple is a worshiper, a disciple is a servant and a disciple is a witness of Jesus. Now our focus in 1 Thessalonians is holding fast to the faith. And I told you from the outset that the reason that we can hold fast to the faith is because the Lord is holding fast to us and we're desiring to be all that he wants us to be. And in this message to the church in the introduction, Paul recognized them for their work of faith, for their labor of love, and for their endurance of hope. And chapter 1 in verse 9 and 10 indicates that they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. So, just in those few words at the close of chapter 1, He gives us a picture of repentance, a picture of worship, and a picture of hope as we anticipate the Lord's return. And with that, we pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or for others, from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead, we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you That we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters. Working night and day so that we would not burden any of you, we preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to live worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I want us to focus especially in these next few minutes on verse 12. Now the case builds in what Paul is discussing here toward verse 12, and we will consider that. But I want us to think specifically about what it means to walk worthy of God and why Paul would say to this church, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to live worthy of God, to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The appeal for the disciples to live lives that were worthy of God is ultimately the highest call for a follower of Jesus. We're motivated by our love for Jesus. So we should ask ourselves the question, if we have no desire, no motivation to live life for God, do we even know God? Because these two go hand in hand. Because we've received the grace of God in salvation, and since we've received the grace of God in salvation, then the outcome of that should be that our lives would be worthy of what he has done on our behalf. And we need to understand who we are in Christ. I think the idea of us being in Christ is the foundational thought that helps us understand how we can walk worthy of God. And all the way back in the very first verse of the book, Paul addresses the believers in Thessalonica as people who were in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the church is in union with God the Father. We're not just here for a religious exercise. We're we're not here because we don't have anything better to do. We are here because by faith, We are in God the Father, and we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church was challenged to look at their situation in view of their reality. They were dealing with difficult circumstances. But that's not what Paul wanted them to focus on. He wanted them to focus on their identity in Christ. And Paul writes of the importance of being in Christ or being in the Lord in the New Testament Some 160 times, this idea of being in Christ is a pervasive idea. It's saturated on the pages of Scripture that this is our identity when we are in Him. Colossians 3 and verse 3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Union with Christ is central to the doctrine of salvation. It underlies every part of redemption and it is the foundation for our future hope who we are in Him, what He's doing in us now, and what He's promised to us for the future. So how can we experience the reality of walking worthy of God and living lives that are worthy of this calling that God has placed on us? Well, first, to walk worthy of God, you need to build your life on the gospel. You need to build your life on the gospel. Now, Paul told the story of his ministry in Thessalonica. If you recall, he'd only been gone a little while. This was not a long expanse of time from when he had been there preaching the gospel and established the church and God blessing in a, in a significant way to when he now writes back to the church. And Paul had to leave there quickly in the middle of the night because of persecution. And what he shares, in a sense, is a personal testimony. But ultimately, he knew that this was not a personal matter. This is not a message that's only focused on the individual. This is a message that's focused on the church. Furthermore, Paul knew that if his ministry and his testimony was discredited, then it would have a negative impact on the gospel. So he wants to be sure that these believers have confidence in who the missionaries were and why and how they had come to them so that he could undergird the message of the gospel that he was communicating. So he defends himself against his enemies, probably, most likely, the unbelieving Jews who had driven him out of Thessalonica. They tried to discredit Paul uh, so that what he was teaching would not be valued. And he comes to them talking to them about the gospel. The gospel just means good news, but yet it means so much more. There's actually a news outlet online that's called the Good News Network. It's been around for 20 some years and the Good News Network houses something like 20,000 good news stories from around the globe. When I think about Paul's ministry, he's bringing to them sort of a a good news ministry. It's the best news of all because it's the news about how we can be right with God. It's the message of hope that we have in Christ. And he mentions the gospel specifically in verse 2, and then again in verse 4, and then again in verse 8, and then again in verse 9. Now clearly from a biblical standpoint, To appreciate the good news, we have to understand that there is bad news. There is good news that we can be forgiven of our sins, but the bad news is that we're sinners. The good news is we can be delivered from judgment, but the bad news is our sin will send us to judgment if we don't know Christ. The good news is that we can be reconciled to God who created us and desires to redeem us. But the bad news is, apart from being in Christ, we are separated from God. But when we are reconciled to him, by grace through faith, then we can do the good works and live the life that is worthy of the calling that God has placed on us. Now there are a few thoughts here about the gospel that I want to be sure that you see. He references it as the gospel of God. That's an important reference because the gospel comes from God. This is something that God has done. This is something that we receive by faith, but it's something that God has done on our behalf. So it is the gospel of God. He is the source of it. He is the one who's made the way for our salvation. And there is only one gospel. That's why Paul would write in Galatians 1 and deal with that very issue. He was interacting in Galatians with the legalists, the the Judaizers who were claiming that there was something more than salvation by grace through faith, that the law had to be kept and they were pushing it in a direction that was contrary to the fact that God saved sinners through faith in Jesus. And Paul says, I'm amazed that you've been so easily bewitched. I'm amazed that you've been so quickly fooled by people that would proclaim another gospel. He says in Galatians 1, if anyone comes to you with another gospel, and he's saying as though there were another gospel, if even the angels of heaven were to come to you and proclaim to you a different gospel, then let them be accursed. Because this is how serious this issue is. To reject the gospel is to reject the living and the true God who gives it. Now, why does the gospel result in so much opposition? You would think that good news would be happily received. You would think that people would welcome the good news. You, you would think that there would be a celebration over the good news. And yet, the gospel is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Why does it bring so much opposition? And the answer lies in what the gospel confronts. And the gospel confronts people's sin. And in our rebellious nature, we do not like being confronted with the reality of who we are and what we've done. So to get to the good news, we have to recognize the bad news. And because people oppose God and the gospel, they also oppose messengers of the gospel. And yet we are called here to walk worthy, to live a life that is worthy and in keeping with who God has called us to be in Christ. The second way that you can experience the reality of walking worthy of God is to walk worthy of God by serving others in the right way. Our lives are not only a profession of faith, Our lives are an application of the truth, and our character embodies who we are, so we can't separate it. In other words, what we believe determines who we are, and who we are drives what we do, and it all goes together. It's a symbiotic relationship between these. Now, we can discern what the false charges were against Paul by how he defends himself against them. He doesn't specifically state these are the charges that were brought against me by the opponents, but yet he speaks of how he came to minister and by contrast what he did not come to do. And the first charge that apparently was being leveled at him was that Paul was jailed and was therefore untrustworthy. Because he states here, we were treated outrageously in Philippi and And we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great persecution. You know what happened to them in Philippi? They experienced a public flogging. They were put into chains and into stocks while in the city's inner prison in Philippi. But Paul notes here that even after they had experienced such bad treatment... Not because of something they had done, but because of the gospel. They came to Thessalonica and they were rolling when they got to Thessalonica. They were emboldened when they got to Thessalonica. They were as courageous as they had ever been. If anything had happened there at Philippi, it just encouraged them to even go harder in with the gospel with boldness and courage because they knew that it was true. And the phrase, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God is the idea of the words flowing freely, the words going forth with confidence as they shared the good news about Jesus. Charge number two was that Paul was delusional, had impure motives, and deliberately deceived. Look again what it says in verse three. Our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Now in the first century world, there were then, as there are now, many competing religions and many were motivated by greed and gain. The city of Thessalonica was particularly prone to these issues. It was located on the Ignatian Way, the famous highway that went from east to west through Macedonia. Thessalonica was an important a melting pot city that had Cultures from all over the known world present in that day. There were a staggering variety of religions and also religious professionals that were there. And in this city, you would find the worship of the gods of the Olympian pantheon, especially Apollo and Athena and Hercules. There were the native Greek mystery religions celebrating Dionysus, which focused on sex and intoxication. There were the Greek intellectual and philosophical traditions that were also represented. There were shrines to many Egyptian gods like Isis and Anubis. Also present were the Roman state cults that deified the political leaders or the political heroes of Rome. And then there were the Jewish people and the God-fearing Gentiles. Most of those religions that were contrary to the gospel in part were also missionary religions, meaning that they were seeking to bring people into what they were doing. They were seeking to draw people into their way of thinking. And you can imagine that if those religions were so well established, and all of a sudden something contrary comes in that people are flocking to, that many are believing in, there's going to be conflict. And most of the people that served in those religions were opportunists who took everything that they could from their listeners and then they would move on to find it uh, from someone else also. And Paul says, that's not how we came to you. We came to you with the gospel. Charge number three was that Paul sought to please people and not God. But he says in verse four, we speak not to please men. That's not our purpose at all. We're not trying to please men, but rather God who examines our hearts. What a word for us in the 21st century church that we would not seek to please men, but we would seek to please God who is the one who examines our hearts. Understanding that We're going to be accountable to God. This this church and the individuals who teach and lead and are responsible for the direction of this church and the content of what's being communicated, we will be accountable to God for what we have spoken. Not that we would want to offend anyone unnecessarily, but it's the truth that engages. It's the truth that shines light into the darkness, and the darkness doesn't like it. And then the conflict comes. Now I think Paul tried to make the gospel as attractive as possible but he never changed the focus. He never changed the central message and his intent, his focus was to please God. He had a very strong accountability understanding that he was going to stand before the omniscient Lord who knows everything and examines everything in our hearts and our lives. And this is so important. When we talk to you in this church about leading you to be a worshiper, this in part is what we're talking about, that God knows your heart, he knows your intent, he knows your motivations, he knows what you really believe, and we want you to be right before him, and we want his word and his spirit to inform your mind and your heart and to direct your life so we speak to please God. Charge number four is that Paul was in it for selfish gain. He wanted personal glory, and he was somewhat of a dictator. He says here, we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles in verse 5 and following, instead, we were gentle among you as a nursing mother Nurtures her own children. So Paul comes in there and he's, he's unconcerned about personal glory. He, he couldn't care less about personal glory. He didn't need fancy introductions. He didn't need lavish praise. His satisfaction came from the fact that he was walking with Jesus. His satisfaction was not from people. You understand that if you're seeking to please people it will always be a moving target. And if you have a greater fear of man than you have a fear of God, you will always be frustrated. And that's particularly so in leadership roles and in the ministry. And they charged him that he was coming in for something other than pure motives. And Paul was there to give them something the gospel not to take something from them. He did not make demands as an apostle. His manner among them was gentle and compassionate and empathetic and loving. And all of that flowed, why? Because he was connected with Christ. Because he was in Christ You see, when we are in Christ and and our lives are directed toward Him and we are hidden with Christ in God, then our character is going to be fundamentally transformed to the very core of our being that Jesus will flow through us. And His character will be evident in us. And he indicated that they imparted not only the gospel, but they imparted their own lives. In verse 8, he says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Friends, this is a picture of spiritual leadership. There was nothing superficial about Paul's commitment. This was from the heart. The people that he served were dear to him. He he connected with them at at a spiritual level and was concerned about them. And the defense that he offers here is not necessarily because the Thessalonian believers were suspicious or doubtful about the missionaries, but what he wanted to do was reassure them and to make clear the message of the gospel. Now don't miss this connection here, this is important. When people see genuine servants of God, who are not in it for selfish gain, who are not lording it over them, but are humbly serving them in the name of Christ, and are seeking to reach the world in that same manner of operation, people are going to be more likely to be drawn to Jesus. So here's a question we need to ask ourselves as leaders. Are people motivated to follow Jesus As his servant, more by how we live? Or are people pushed away from Jesus because when they see our lives, they see something that they don't like? We're to walk worthy of God by serving others in the right way. The third way you can experience the reality of walking worthy of God is to walk worthy of God. By seeking to please the one who has called you into his own kingdom and glory. I want to come back to this idea in verse 4. We speak not to please men, but rather God. Did you know that your focus in life is critically important? How you see things is incredibly important. And if you're focused on the wrong things, then your life and your work for the Lord is going to follow in that. And we've got to stay focused so that we're not prone to the world, the flesh, and the devil that we would be rendered ineffective or disqualified in our service for God. There was a man in the early 1900s by the name of Manfred von Richtofen. He was a German fighter pilot that you probably know as the Red Baron. The Red Baron was the most aggressive of the flying aces in World War I for the Germans. During a 19-month period, it's said that he shot down 80 Allied aircraft and won widespread fame for his scarlet-colored airplanes and his ruthless flying style. On April 21st of 1918, he led his flight of triplanes to search for British observation aircraft over France. An engagement ensued with Camel airplanes led by Canadian Royal Air Force pilot Captain Arthur Roy Brown. Brown's friend, Lieutenant Wilfred May, was a rookie on his first offensive patrol. The inexperienced May had been ordered to keep out of combat, but in his youthful ignorance he could not resist and he went straight into it. He jammed his guns in the midst of the engagement, and defenseless, he headed away from the battle. The Red Baron spotted the lone plane and chose it for what would be kill number 81. Brown observed the scene below him and dove to help his fellow airmen, knowing that May was no match for the Red Baron. But listen to what happened next. It was then, with Brown closing from behind that the Red Baron, usually a meticulous and disciplined fighter pilot, made a mistake and broke one of his own rules. Following May, too long, too far, and too low into enemy territory. Two miles behind the Allied lines, as Brown caught up with the Red Baron and fired, the chase passed over the machine gun nest of of the field artillery, and the debate continues over who fired the fatal shot, that went through the Red Baron's torso, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Whether hit from the air or from the ground, the Red Baron was mortally wounded. He was good. He was probably also overconfident, but he broke one of his own rules. Maybe in his mind, he was just stretching it a little bit, or maybe he was distracted and he lost focus on what he should have been doing but whatever the case was he compromised and he lost his focus which led to his demise the temptation of number 81 was just too much and I draw a spiritual application from that we are to be focused on Christ and on the work that he has called us to do We battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, any of which can be spiritually detrimental to us. And our focus in life makes all the difference. Paul had a Godward focus. That, that was his emphasis. His Godward focus was anchored in his heart. And he was careful not to needlessly offend others, but even his actions toward people were for one purpose. And that one purpose was to please God. And when he said that he had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, he was referring to his heart before God. So he spoke candidly and positively about his own heart. He knew that people rightly watched him as he ministered. He, he knew that they had the right to watch him as he served the Lord. Those who lead will be examined to see if their words match their lives. And Paul calls the Thessalonian believers as witnesses. If anyone could have disputed his assertions, it would have been them. He administered with them shoulder to shoulder. You can't hide much from people when you're immersed in the work and your relationships are deep and you're known and you're accountable. But then he went further and he called God as his witness. Think about being in a court of law and they bring the witnesses up one by one and There are maybe eyewitnesses or maybe there are expert witnesses and there's a case that's being built against you. But imagine if God himself is the witness who sees all things perfectly. But he not only sees all things perfectly from the outside, he sees to the very core of our being. And Paul says, God is my witness. He knew above all that he was answerable to God. As are we. We are answerable to God. At one point in his ministry, Paul appeared before the Roman governor Felix, Acts chapter 24 and verse 16. And he said, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and men. That means we need to confess our sins and live lives that are prayed up. This is a a life of close proximity to God. This, This is a life of intimate fellowship and communion with God. So that there's nothing that hinders our fellowship with him. And he goes on to say here in verse 11 and 12, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to walk worthy of God or to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he expresses the nurturing tenderness of a mother, but he also demonstrated the strength of a father's love to encourage, to comfort, and to urge these people toward godly living. To encourage or to exhort is a heartfelt term. It's not a one-time shot in the arm to to make a person feel better. This is not flattery that Paul is talking about here. It, It is the strong support and trust that imparts courage to other people and Paul wrote it in the present tense that's important because he viewed it as as a continual action he he viewed it as an as an ongoing process of encouraging and exhorting the people and people need to be encouraged and they need to be infused again and again as a matter of practice to be emboldened to do what they know is right in most every occasion, as followers of Jesus who've been in the church very long at all or have been walking as disciples, because the Spirit of God is bringing witness to us and because we've been exposed to the Word of God enough, we know what to do. But sometimes we need other believers to come alongside of us and to encourage us and say, you know what to do, now you need to go do it. You need to be encouraged to, to keep on exhorting one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. He says we comforted you. This idea of comforting is the gentle empathy which comes and stays alongside someone as they experience failures and distresses in life. What a blessing it is to be in a church where when things go wrong, there are other people just to be there with us. Pray for us to love us, to comfort us, and to strengthen us as they do that. And then he says, we implored you or urged or charged you. That comes from a solemn and earnest view of a situation, asking someone to do or to be something for their highest good. The urging has a clear view of what is right in helping people as they go through the maze of emotions in life and the conflicts that can confuse the issue. So why did Paul live among them as a father, inspiring, encouraging, standing with them in difficulty and addressing the serious issues of life? Because he wanted them to understand how to live a life that is worthy of God. He wanted them to walk worthy of God by seeking to please the one who had called them into his own kingdom and his own glory. And that would be the same aim that I would have for you today, that you would walk worthy of God by seeking to please the one who has called you into his own kingdom and glory. God has placed his call upon our lives to walk worthy in order to make us like Jesus. And God has promised us his kingdom and glory. God has determined to create for himself a people who bear his character and nature. And despite the dark rebellion and sin which penetrates all of the created order, God has constantly pursued mankind and he has revealed his personhood and his justice and his love and his mercy. And he sent Jesus into the world to demonstrate his glory and to bring back to himself what is rightfully his. So I say to you, church, that we are the presence of Christ in this age, here and now, in this time, in this place, in this moment, God has called us to walk worthy, but are we living in such a way that our lives are consistent with who God has called us to be? I want to encourage, comfort, and implore you to see yourself as God sees you. Created in the image of God. Forgiven. Redeemed. In Christ. Know who you are. I want to encourage and comfort and implore you to walk worthy by living a life of surrender and worship to God. Know whose you are and then I want to encourage and comfort and implore you to walk worthy by making choices that will reflect God's will because he empowers us to live holy lives and to give us grace along the way know what you're supposed to do if you know who you are and you understand whose you are and you get it about what you're supposed to be doing you can live a life. You can walk worthy, and you can look forward to the promise of what Jesus has secured on your behalf. Aspire heads to.